Over the past months, we've been moving through the book of Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 16. Our New Testament complementary passage is Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. So if you place your bulletin or your bulletin insert in your Bibles as a bookmark in Exodus chapter 16, open them to Hebrews chapter 4. And in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he had said, I I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the earth. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 16, continuing in the reading of God's word. They set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we? that you grumble against us. And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling." And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. 
And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take each an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept through your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we have read, we come now to the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So my family and I were missionaries in Uganda. We were missionaries for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And the way that missions in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church works 
is we do four years on the quote-unquote mission field, working in Uganda. And then we do one year back here, visiting all of the churches that supported us. And so they call it furlough, and we're itinerating. Now, we traveled as a family, and we traveled to Orthodox Presbyterian churches from Orlando, Florida, to New Jersey and Philadelphia, New York, Iowa, Montana, Nevada, Washington State, Oregon, Alaska, Northern and Southern California. We went all over the place. And there are two perspectives on that year that both operate completely parallel to one another. One is this cool family adventure of driving around the country and meeting all of these people that have been praying for us regularly and, and you know, how encouraging that was, seeing cool new sites, Yellowstone, we drove through Yellowstone National Park on the way uh, to one of the churches and, and saw Old Faithful and, and all these cool, beautiful things. We listened to Homer's Odyssey on tape. Uh, and it was just kind of cool to be listening to the Odyssey while we're taking our own Odyssey. And and so there's there's that picture of that year for us. There's also another picture of that year, which may be familiar to many of you parents, and that is eight hours a day, seven days a week of obnoxious, are we there yet? How much longer? He's looking out my window. She's touching me. It was horrible. It was the worst thing ever. And both of these things operate completely in harmony with one another. Any of you parents or any of you kids, maybe, that have taken a road trip know how these two things seemingly opposed to one another can actually coexist. The children of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness now for exactly six weeks. That's what our first verse tells us. It's the second week of the second month after they left the land of Egypt. Six weeks, they've seen some powerful things. They've witnessed the the plagues. They've witnessed the Red Sea. They've, They've experienced this glorious deliverance that God has brought to them. And six weeks into the journey, did you hear a word over and over and over again in chapter 16? Grumbling. (laughs) The children of Israel are getting sick and tired of wandering. And they are grumbling against God. They grumble against Moses, but God, Moses, Moses and Aaron recognize they're not grumbling against them. They're grumbling against God's provision for them. And that is going to be the theme. We picked it up last week at the end of chapter 15. It's going to be the theme specifically over the next couple of chapters. Is this tension between a people who have been redeemed by God's mighty outstretched hand, marching in glory and in protection unto that promised land, and a bunch of whiners 
who constantly find something to complain about. And isn't that you and me? Isn't that our reality? That's why the Exodus is so relevant. Cool stories. I mean, the story of manna is a, is a pretty cool story. But underlying these things are some profound truths and some deep ways that reflect your life and mine. As we look at this narrative this morning, we're going to look at two components of the narrative. The first is God's provision. God's provision. And the second is God's rest. God's provision and God's rest. Now, listen to their complaint. All right? You, we, we all, we're all up to speed on the story thus far, right? The children of Israel were slaves in the land of Egypt. They were oppressed by Pharaoh. It got so bad that Pharaoh told the midwives to drown the baby boys in the Nile River. When the people complain against this harsh tactic, against the harsh burden that Pharaoh is placing on them, he tells his taskmasters when they want to go out and worship God, he says they clearly don't have enough work, so now they've got to do the same output in terms of bricks, but they've got to go gather straw. And the people say this is an impossible task. Doesn't it sound like Egypt is a place they want to get away from? Doesn't it sound like Egypt is a place that it was only six weeks ago. It was only six weeks ago that they were there. They should still have something of an afterglow of the glory of God's great saving hand. And yet, what is it that they say to Moses? Ah, Egypt was great, man. We had buckets of meat. Did you hear that? Verse 3. We had our meat pots. We had all the bread we could eat. Every day was all you can eat buffet at the Golden Corral. This place was glorious. Six weeks ago. Six weeks ago. (laughs) Their babies are getting drowned. And they're being forced to labor under completely harsh and unjust conditions. Beloved, you and I can look at them, and I hope laugh a little bit. I hope we can see the absolute ridiculous nature of their grumbling. Because I think Moses is presenting it with a touch of irony, with a little bit of humor in it. Anybody reading this text knows the Israelites were not sitting at their leisure in Egypt with buckets of meat and all the bread that they could possibly stuff in their mouths. That's not the situation at all. And so I think Moses is presenting this with some ironic humor. But then we get to our own life. We get to our own complaints. We get to our own dissatisfaction and unease 
with God's providence. How God is providing health-wise, housing-wise, all of the different ways. Finances, spouse lack thereof, parents lack thereof, children lack thereof. All of the different ways in which God leads us by his loving hand. And how many of us can say, we are pure and clean, no grumbling from me at all. Every moment of every day, whatever comes my way, I look to my Father and I say, thank you. Is that your testimony? Because it's not mine. It's not the children of Israel's. And I think the reality is that you and I are just as ridiculous and just as silly as these people. Now, the particular dilemma, the the particular conflict that we can see underlying their grumbling really is a matter of who is going to reign over them. Who is going to be their ruler? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be Pharaoh? And here they are. They're God's people. They've been delivered. They're out in the wilderness. They're marching to the promised land. And what's their complaint? We had it better under Pharaoh. Right? Isn't that what they're saying? We had it better. The slavery, the death, the oppression, all of this, we prefer over what God is providing for us. Now, I said, Moses is, is, I think, deliberately introducing some humor in this. But the humor should not take away from the blasphemy, from the shock of someone looking at God's caring, loving hand in their lives and saying, No thanks. I'll take that. I'll take death. A friend of mine, a few weeks back, fell into grievous sin and disqualified himself from the gospel ministry. And I was was speaking to other brothers who, who know this friend, who, who know this, this person. And I said, I am sick and tired of seeing the battlefield littered with the corpses of my fellow soldiers. Men who have preached the gospel. Men who have run the race, who have done well in ministry, and yet have blown it. I'm tired of it. I am sick of it. And yet, did you hear the writer to the Hebrews? He says to you and to me, be careful. 
because those who God brought out did not all share the same faith with one another. And many of them, their bodies ended up littering the wilderness. And what is the fundamental difference? What makes the difference as to whether or not you run the race and finish well, or you run part of the race and end up dead on the battlefield? It is simply this. Are you committed to God's reign over every aspect of your life? See, that's the problem that the Israelites are not yet committed to. The Israelites are not yet committed to saying, every single decision, every single hour, I'm going to structure my week around God. I'm going to structure my family around God. I'm going to structure my life around God. They're not there yet. They're all about getting out of Pharaoh's hands. But they're not so sure they're comfortable and trusting in God's hands. And so God takes this grumbling and responds with unbelievable grace in provision. It's not the picture of a triumphant march through the wilderness but it's the picture of a recalcitrant two-year-old getting drugged by the scruff of their neck. Verses, well, all through the passage, verse 2, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. It continues all the way through chapter 16. Grumbling, 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 grumbling. These are not a beautiful people. And yet, in response to this, God gives them this miraculous provision of manna. Now, the event that each one of them faces is exactly the same. Everybody here in the wilderness is in exactly the same boat. They're all living in their tents. They're all living a nomadic lifestyle. They're all going towards Mount Sinai and then to the promised land. The difference between them is not their circumstances. The difference is their attitude. And specifically, the issue of their trust. Now, again, I I think there's some humor in this, but it's also a little bit shocking. I mean, you, you, you just heard the story, right? The children of Israel complaining, we don't have food, you brought us out here in the wilderness to kill kill us, and so God says, at night, quails are going to come in, and you're going to have meat, and in the morning, there's going to be this beautiful thing on the ground, manna, which is Hebrew for what is it? it? They don't know what this thing is, but it it tastes like cakes dipped in honey. This is not just MREs. Uh, This is not just something to sustain life, but it's delicious. It's a delicious food 
that grows on the ground. And God simply gives two instructions. The first is, don't try to store it up overnight. Jesus later will say, give us this day our daily bread. You need to trust God day to day that he will provide for you tomorrow as he has today. Right? Basic instruction. Don't get more than you're going to eat today and don't store it overnight. And then the second basic instruction is on the sixth day, gather enough for two days. Because on the Sabbath, I don't want you going out and working. I want you resting on the Sabbath. So, of course, what do the people do? Of course, these idiots in verse 20 do what? Gather more than they needed for the day and tried to store it overnight because they don't know, is this going to happen again tomorrow? I mean, God provided miraculously today, but who knows about tomorrow? And so the next morning, verse 20 tells us, it had worms and it stank. So, okay, now we've, we've got that sorted. Okay, I'm not, not collecting it overnight. I've had six days of manna. Are you starting to see a pattern? I'm six days of manna. I should expect on the seventh day there's going to be manna as well, right? No, because God gave a second basic instruction. On the sixth day, gather enough for two and don't go out on the seventh day. And so what does verse 27 in your Bible say? On the Sabbath they went out. <laughs> and it's just like you can see God pulling his hair, his celestial hair out. And he says to Moses, how long am I going to tolerate this? How long am I going to put up with this? And this is six weeks into 40 years. <laughs> six weeks! And God is metaphorically pulling his hair out over the stupidity and the rebellion of these people that he has delivered and these people that he is providing for. And you see there not only kind of a dark view of humanity, of the human condition, of your life and my life. Not just a dark view of just how dumb and stubborn we can be. But you also see a glorious view of God's grace. Because my goodness, he has every right to just, just get out of my car. <laughs> just pull over to the side of the interstate and tell these kids in the back seat, grumbling about, are we there yet? You're there now. Get out. This is ridiculous. I'm driving on. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he provides again and again and again and again. He provides in the most powerful and glorious way, secondly, in the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath isn't given to us, isn't, isn't uh, formulated for us until a few chapters on down when we get to Mount Sinai and when God gives Moses the law. But remember, 
two things. One is that Exodus is being written while the children of Israel are camped on the plains of Moab and preparing to enter into the promised land. So this is a review of their history and specifically their parents' history. But Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all compiled by Moses' hand while he, while the children of Israel are camped there in the plains of Moab and preparing to enter into the promised land. So we can expect that there's going to be some things that come up later that are assumed earlier, that sort of thing. We're, we're not, we're not seeing these events written as they happen. But the second thing is that the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath unto the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. Your manservant, your male servant, female servant, your ox, your cattle, your stranger that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested. Therefore he sanctified the Sabbath day and made it holy. The fourth commandment is grounded in creation. It's a creation commandment. The, the, the very six days of creation are centered around this Sabbath rest. And the Sabbath rest is a, is a picture, even the rest itself, is a picture of that Sabbath rest. And that's why we read Hebrews. You who have entered into this Sabbath rest, there remains yet a Sabbath for us to rest. And so, so the Sabbath itself is, is, is grounded in the very fabric of creation, but it's also from its first introduction pointing us to a deeper rest. In other words, Sabbath rest, and, and if you've grown up in a Christian home, particularly a home which, which keeps the Lord's Day, which follows, uh, that, that Lord's Day is a day of rest, I grew up in such a home, and in my recalcitrant, Israel-like manner, I viewed the Sabbath as a day in which I wasn't allowed to do anything fun. That's what the Lord's Day is. Lord's Day is a day when mom and dad go take a nap, and I'm certainly not allowed to make noise, and I can't ride my bicycle because that's recreation on the Sabbath, and I guess I just sit here with my hands folded until we go to evening fellowship, and then, thank goodness, this day is over with, and I can go back to being wild and free and, and, and happy. Now, maybe I'm the only one with such a shallow spiritual reality, but I'm guessing not. I'm guessing others have kind of that view or had that view of Sunday if you grew up in a Christian home. But you know the irony is, the Sabbath, is presented in Scripture as a day of rest. But a day of rest from what? That's our problem. That's our problem. We don't see what the Sabbath is resting from. The writer of the Hebrews tells us, the Sabbath is a rest from your works. From those things that you are striving for Throughout your week. Verses 
28 and 29, which is this that God's response to them gathering on the Sabbath day. The, the, these people are freed from the harsh conditions under Pharaoh, and yet they still don't trust God. They don't trust Him to provide bread on that seventh day. Beloved, do you trust Him? Do you trust God to provide you with that person that will be good for you? Do you trust God to provide you with that job that will provide for you? Do you trust God to provide you with the children or the opportunities for service that are limited by having children? Do you trust Him? Not saying it's all going to be glorious and candy-filled. I mean, children of Israel are still wandering through a lot of wilderness. There's still a lot of rocks and thorns and people are going to attack them. And, and there's still all of the bad stuff that life throws at you. Life in a fallen world. But the bottom line challenge for the children of Israel is the bottom line challenge for you. Do you trust Him? Is your life in His hand? How would this look? How would this look? I'm actually going to trot out an illustration that I was going to use last week, but didn't, but I think it does fit here. How would it look just in one narrow aspect, just, just one tiny little aspect of our lives. By virtue of our finitude, you and I are limited. We're limited by time. We're limited by death. And so, by that limitation, you and I have a very limited amount of relationships that we can establish. We have a very limited amount of words that we can say. We have a very limited amount of hours that are given to us. Our time is, just by virtue of finitude, limited. And for some of you, it's a lot more limited. <laughs> I'm, I'm young. I got tons and tons of years left. But we're all limited, aren't we? And of course, I'm saying that tongue in cheek. I can go out from this place and get hit by a car today or slip on that ridiculous ice. Uh, but living aware of our finitude, how would that shape the stuff I post on social media? How would that shape, knowing that I only have so many words over the course of my lifetime that I can speak to my wife? How would that shape the words that I choose? How would that shape me saying, ah, yeah, no, this is a petty, stupid thing. I, I don't need to, I don't even need to raise this. I, 
I've only got so much time. I've only got so many words. I'm going to make sure those words are words of grace and peace and truth. Now, if you and I really thought that way, if you and I really lived that way, how much of a testimony would it be to the people around us? How shocking would it be? Beloved, you can virtue signal all you want. I can virtue signal. We can all virtue signal. Everybody's doing it. Big honking deal. But to walk into a day, a relationship, to walk into your life and say, I'm going to live out this Sabbath rest. I'm going to, by God's grace, make sure that my interactions with my children, my spouse, my neighbors, my co-workers, the randos that I meet at the grocery store, I'm going to make sure that whatever comes out of my mouth is gracious, loving, peaceful, and encouraging. A, would that be pretty different from your life today? And B, doesn't that pretty much just sum up all of the stuff in the New Testament? Isn't that pretty much just Paul saying, let therefore no corrupt communication proceed from your mouth, but only that which is edifying? Isn't that what Paul is saying is live the Sabbath? Live this. Christ has rescued you from your works. Christ has rescued you from that horrible slavery. And so live this Sabbath rest. Beloved, if you know the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been, you've been listening to the whole liturgy thus far. This isn't just in the sermon. It begins with the reading of the law and the confession of sin, and the assurance of pardon, if you know that you are a sinner, and if you know that you have been redeemed by God's mighty and outstretched hand, then chapter 16 is where you and I are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, building up to the Lord's day. God provides our needs for the day. And he tells us to be at rest. To speak out of that rest. To speak out of that place of identity. The people of God provided for in Christ. If you don't know this rest, if, if, if this whole chapter is just some weird stuff about stuff floating on the ground and people eating it, and, and, and all that sort of stuff, then I plead with you. Give some real consideration. Are you resting from your works? When you stand before God on the day of judgment, what do you intend to have come out of your mouth? Is it going to be something to do with your works? Or are you going to say, I'm here because of Him? The only right that I have to stand here is because He is my righteousness. He is my Passover lamb. He is the one 
whose blood covers the doorpost of my house, the lentils of my house. He is the one in whom I am found. If that is your testimony, then live it. That's it. That's all that chapter 16 summed up. Frankly, it's all the book of Exodus summed up. Live it. He's delivered you. He provides for you. He calls you to enter into this rest. And so, beloved, join with me in praying that God would allow us more and more to live and to speak Sabbath-drenched lives. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for these stories that are given to us in Scripture and the underlying truths that they reveal. They reveal truths about ourselves. Lord, they also reveal great truths about you. Your beautiful hand of provision, your care and love for us. Help us, Father, to speak and act out of that Sabbath rest. In Christ's name, amen.